We're up to, we're in the middle of the story of Moshe and the golden calf. Very central story. And uh, so we began last week with this Moshe descending the mountain. On the mountain he prays, um, prays for the people on the mountain that God should not destroy the people. Let's find this in the Chumash. It's on page page 190, sorry, 190 or 80, 184, 184. Moshe on the mountain prays for the people. He wants to, because God has threatened to destroy the people and make Moshe a nation. That's the top of page 184. And uh, I will destroy them, let my anger rage against them, and I will destroy them and make you a great nation. So this is an offer that Moshe is given, which is, reminds us of earlier story in the Torah, where someone also was told, I'm going to destroy everybody and build a nation or a world out of you. And that's the story of Noah, of course. Story of no- that's an offer that Noah accepts. Noah doesn't, in the Chumash, in the Noah doesn't pray, Noah doesn't say, how could you do this? Maybe there are maybe 50 righteous people or something along those lines. Noah says nothing. He's silent. Go build an ark. And Noah goes and does, in the words of the Torah, what God commands him to do. That phrase, that God commanded him to do it, Noah did as God commanded, that appears several times in the Noah story. What's interesting is, when you look at the story of Noah, Back in, what is it, chapter 6 of Reshit and 7, I think it's 6, 7, and 8. Um, and Noah is told this bit of news. God intends to destroy the world, and Noah is told to build an ark. And Noah does not object, does it, in the words of the Torah, I think it appears four times, and Noah did as God had commanded him. The question is, when you read that, is there any sense that the Chumash is critiquing Noah? Or is Noah's behavior acceptable in the eyes of, of, the, of, of, of the Torah? But when you look at it, I think it's obvious when you look at the Chumash in those, in those chapters that there's no sense of critique on any level. <coughs> Noah does what God commands him to do. is not represented there as a critique of Noah. Why didn't he pray? There's no sense of that whatsoever. In fact, the question is, is there ever a sense of, 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 of that? That's a very, I think, a very important question. In the, in, the, in the Midrash, and certainly over the last many years, when people speak of Abraham versus Noah, they always pick up on the distinction between them, that Abraham prays for the town of Sodom, for example, in chapter 18. Maybe there are 50 righteous, or 45, or 40, 30, 20, 10. And Noah was silent. Noah simply did as God commanded him. And they see that the Torah, they read into that through the lens of the Abraham story, that perhaps Noah should have protested. That's a very important, uh, that's an important point. The question is, is it, is it, is it, is it accurate or not? So I maintain it's, it's, that it's not accurate. That there's a difference between the story of Noah in chapter 6 and the story of Abraham in chapter 18 and our story right over here when Moses is told, well, leave me alone. That's in verse number 184, verse number 10. In verse number 9, and even before that, I've seen this people, says God, and I will, leave me alone, 
and I will make you a, a nation. And then Moshe prays. Moshe entreats and pours God. So the question is, what is the difference between the Noah story and the story of Abraham in chapter 18, and the story of Moshe, if there is a difference? Some people think that, no. Some people argue that through the prism, through the lens of the latest stories, in looking back at the earlier story, the latest story, through the, through the lens of the latest story, we, we read the earlier story as a, somehow there is a critique which is emerging from the later stories. That's not an, an impossible position to take. That's a very plausible position to take. However, I don't think it's true in this particular case, and I'll tell you why. But Sigrid, you want to say something? I see it maybe as the moral development of the human being. Adam disobeys, Noah obeys, Abraham um, argues. Okay, so you're saying that the Torah then represents, so in a certain sense, there is a critique. You want to say critique, but the better position, the better thing would have been for Noah to pray. You want to say the human being on that point in time is that the Torah speaks of some kind of moral development over time. That's actually a very interesting position. I remember reading about this, I remember many uh, years ago when there was a good friend of my parents used to come to the house and he liked to debate all kinds of intellectual issues. His position was the world is somehow improving all the time. Yeah, the world's improving all the time. I don't see the empirical evidence for that, but that's beside the point. You know, in any event, point is, here's, here's the difference between the two stories. Yes? Well, the other thing is that, in all due respect to Noah, he's not promised anything before. I'm not promised that I will be raised. I'm also certainly promised to be the leader. You mean that Avram's promise to be, and the promise in chapter 17 to be the father of many nations, it, that is suggesting responsibility for all the nations. That's a good point, actually. Now, that's not the point. I, that's not the direction I wanted to take. But that's a very good point in terms of, in that case, he has some sense of, okay, and Noah was never given that charge. You still could make the argument, okay, I'm not given the charge, but nonetheless, I am living in the world. There's a big world around me. God will obliterate the entire world. Why didn't Noah speak up? But <coughs> if you look at, this, look at the three stories, the story of Abraham, the story of Noah in 6, the story of Abraham in Genesis 18, and the story of Moses in Exodus 34, there's one interesting distinction between those three stories, and that is, in the second story, let's say with Abraham, and God said to Abraham in chapter 18, what verse is this? You always have to look, look it up. You should always look it up. Never trust. In these things you can't trust anybody. You have to look it up for yourself. God, God has said to Abraham, <coughs> Page 31 in this translation. In verse 17, First God has visited Abraham, or his messengers visited Abraham, say they're going to have a child, and they leave. But God said, Can I conceal from Abraham what I plan to, what I, what I, what I, what I am doing? After all, Abraham, Abraham, and oh, everybody is blessed through him. Exactly your point. I have known him or singled him out because I have singled him out in order that he instruct his children to keep the right way of God to do tzedakah or mishpat. So what does that mean? God says to Abraham, I'm about to do something. I don't want to conceal it from you because I know you're very obsessed with, with righteous behavior, with justice. 
Here's what I plan to do, to obliterate all, all these people. Abraham said to God, what is this? Is this just? Right? Shall the judge of the earth not do justice? But my point is, God has invited Abraham to pray. God says, I'm not going to conceal it from you. I'm going to tell you what I... I don't know, I'll tell you why I'm telling you this. I know you're very concerned about Tzedakah and Mishpah, which is why I bless you. I bless you because of your passion for justice. This is what I plan to do. So Abraham turns to God and says, is this just? Is it just to kill everybody? But the point is, there's an invitation. God is basically setting it up. Now what about our story over here in Exodus chapter 34? I would argue there's also an invitation. A more subtle one, but an invitation. God said to Moshe, right? God says, first of all, they made the golden calf. That's the bottom of 183. They bowed down, they this, they saved the God. And now God said, I've seen these people. Moshe doesn't talk. Now God speaks in verse 9. I've seen these people. They're very stubborn. So now, leave me alone. Permit me. Hanicha means to leave me alone. Right? Let me be, this God says. Let me be. If you let me be, and I'll destroy them and make you a nation. But my point is, what does it mean, let me be? Hanichali. Hanichali means, don't let me be, actually. If you let me be, I'm going to destroy them. Is a way of saying, if you let me be, I'll destroy them. But if, but if you don't let me be, we can have a conversation about it. At which point, Vayichal Moshe, Pnei Hashem Elokav, Moshe entreats God. Interesting, by the way, is the word Vayichal. That particular word Vayichal, it's not a common word in the Torah. It appears, though, most prominently in the beginning of the Torah, from the second creation story, beginning in chapter, I would say, chapter 4, through chapter 6, it appears several times, mostly in conjunction with uh, Noah. Vayachal Noah Ishadama, Vayachal Shivat Yamim, Vayachal Oshivat Yamim Achevim. The Torah reminds us of the Noah story over here. Not only that, the word Hanicha, that's that God says, Hanicha way, hey nun yud chet hey, is related, of course, to the stem of Noah. Hanichali, and not only that, but the end of the paragraph, which says, Vayinachem Hashem, that God relented of the evil of Nacham, Nichem, is, is, is the reason in the Torah for Noah's name. Say, In short, the Torah is recalling the story of Noah, but I don't think it is to, re- it is to necessarily critique Noah. But to make the point, that it, whereas in that story, Noah said nothing, and he said nothing for the following reason because God didn't invite him into the conversation. One could make the argument that in order to, have to pray, you need an, an invitation. Now, I think in rabbinic Judaism, the life in which we live, we presume an invitation. We have a standing invitation. God has given us a standing invitation. That's how we see it. So therefore, we can pray. But um, it's a very good question about prayer. You know what I mean? Uh, but in these cases, God actually is inviting Moshe to pray and certainly inviting Abraham to pray. Whereas God said to, whereas God said to Noah, you are the only righteous person. I see you as the only righteous one before me. You are the only righteous one. So God is already precluding any kind of prayer. What's he going to say? Maybe there are the righteous ones? Can you hear what I said? There's one righteous one. And I'm talking to him. There are no other righteous people. That's what God says. So, in other words, what's interesting is this question about invitation to pray. It comes up in another story, of course, which many people have spoken about, some have written about, very important story, the binding of Isaac. The question that is raised typically is how come Abraham doesn't pray? God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac, 
and bring him up as a burnt offering. And Abraham, who had prayed very, you know, fervently for Sodom, maybe the 50 righteous or 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, whatever, when it comes to take your son, who's certainly an innocent, and bring him up as a sacrifice, Abraham doesn't say one word. He gets up early in the morning to carry out God's command. Why didn't Abraham pray? So that's the question. And that usually segues into, or sometimes segues into the thought that his non-prayer is actually wrong. That he did the wrong thing at the Akedah. He should have tried to intervene on behalf of Isaac. Now, can't get into the Akedah. I'm totally convinced, at least my understanding, which I trust totally, by the way. My understanding, intuition, and everything else says and that is a completely erroneous reading of the Torah. There is not a shred of evidence in the Chumash, and I mean not a shred, that the Torah in any manner, shape, or form critiques Abraham the opposite. It is obvious in the Chumash that Abraham's fulfillment of God's uh, request is seen as the pinnacle of Abraham's life, and at that point in time, the, the eternal covenantal blessing is actually quenched in the Chumash. So anybody who makes a suggestion to you ever suggests that Abraham did the wrong thing, he should have prayed, and all this other nonsense, that's what it comes under, complete nonsense, just look at the Chumash and ask for a piece of evidence, a shred of evidence, that Abraham is critiqued in any manner, shape, or form. And the reason he's not critiqued, is there are actually several reasons, but one is this. The story begins by saying that God is testing Abraham, Elohim Nisad Abraham, which means it doesn't tell us God's tone of voice, but you can tell from someone's tone of voice, we all know that sometimes when you're talking to somebody, there's room for negotiation. And sometimes when you're talking to somebody, there is no room for negotiation. Some, you know, you can tell from the tone. Elohim Nisad Abraham makes it clear from the beginning of, the, of that story, from day one. This is not a, a negotiation here. It's a test. And it's clear to Abraham that he is to do God's bidding. I would also make the important distinction, which actually Levinson makes in his work. John Levinson says many things. That's another long topic. He says many things that are correct. He says some things I think are very not correct. But the fact is, he makes a very important distinction. God did not say, murder your son Isaac. God never said that. God said, bring him up as a sacrifice. Now, the end result is he's killed. That's true. But the Torah doesn't see that as murder. Bring him up as a sacrifice. We may see it that way. The Chumash doesn't. Bring him up as a sacrifice is not the same as kill your son. It's a different thing. I'm not talking about what, what existed in those times. The fact of the matter is that that's not what Abraham is hearing. So it's a different, it's a completely different situation. In any event, my point is, it's more a point about prayer and also about these texts. God is actually inviting Moshe to, to speak. And by the way, in the account, in the parallel account of the golden calf in, in Dvarim, chapter 9, there too, different language but the same idea. God said to Moshe, Heref me many v'yashvi deim. Leave me alone, leave me alone, and I will destroy them. Leave me alone and I'll destroy them means don't leave me alone. It's, or at least it, gives, it opens the possibility that God is willing to listen to a counter-argument. That's, that's the first point I want to make about the story over here. And Moshe does pray. Moshe on the mountain, on the spot. He doesn't wait. By Yechal Moshe at Pnei Hashem Elokav, Moshe entreats God. I don't remember, been so much teaching lately, if we went through all the arguments last week or not in this prayer, did we? Who remembers? 
we don't remember we didn't do it so okay so the point is let's just summarize Moshe's arguments over here I don't think we spend time on this I think we spend more time on the next section um, the arguments are the following first of all A argument number one counter argument we call it prayer Moshe's, Moshe, the first words out of Moshe's mouth is the word Lama why he questions God God has said I've seen this people they're very stubborn in fact God said earlier in the previous page in verse number 7 go down the mountain leave depart from here go down the people that you have taken out of the land of Egypt shichet, they have corrupted their ways by the way the term shichet is the identical term that we find in the story of the uh, flood with Noah that term appears several times in the Noah story here with the parallel over here God said to Moses go down the mountain the people you took up out of Egypt they have they have uh, corrupted themselves so Moses first counterpoint is Moshe entreats God the reading for the fast days God why are you angry at your people that's the first counter argument you said they're my people that I took up out of Egypt and Moshe says one second let's, let me just with all due respect correct what you've said why would you God be angry at the people the people you took out of the land of Egypt with great strength with great power and an outstretched arm right in other words first point is they're not my people because I didn't I can't redeem the people <coughs> they're your people you took them out so first let's correct the first thing you said go down the people you took out of, out of, out of uh, Egypt have corrupted themselves no I didn't do it you took them out and therefore they're yours by virtue of the fact that you have redeemed them you also acquire them that's, that's Moshe's first point they're not mine but the second point and related point is to be found in verse number 12 the Chumash presents this in extremely human terms Moshe talks to God where one might speak to a some human superior. Lama yomru, Lama. The second question is why? Lama, Lama yomru Mitzrayim leimar biraa hotziam garogotam beharim ulechalotam meaplei adama shuv mecharon apecha vinochem al garawi abecha. This is the end of the first argument. This is actually a very important argument. The argument is this. It's a very human argument. The argument is, I know you're angry. Right? I know you're angry. But let's, let's, let's get reality check here. These are your people. And the point that your people in two senses, says Moshe, first of all, you, you're the one that saved them. Did, they, did I bring them out of Egypt? I'm a messenger boy. I, you give me a staff. I, I raise the staff. You do a miracle. You split, the, you split the sea. I can't do those things. So therefore, they're yours. But furthermore, here's the point. Whatever you may be thinking, God, that's your business. But let me tell you about down here in this world what we think. The Egyptians, we being the world, including Mitzrayim, the Egyptians will say the following thing. Here there's an interesting play. But Bira'ah means with, with, with evil intentions. That you took them out from the beginning. They will make the claim that this, this spectacular thing you did, Yitziat Mitzrayim, was not done to save them to redeem them or to bring them to the holy mountain or whatever or the land of milk and honey but from the very beginning your intentions were only bad you took them out 
to have them killed. Either you took them out to have them purposely killed, or you took them out, in, in taking them out, you actually endangered them. In other words, I would say the following, given the fact that when we look at the ten plagues, and we about this time of year, you start looking at the ten plagues, Pesach is coming sooner than you think. So, in the ten plagues, as we study, the reasons are given for the plagues. The reasons are given before plague number one, before, before plague number four, and before plague number seven. And the reasons are, Moshe said to Paro, in order that you know, A, in the first instance, you know that I exist. Number two, in the second set of three, you know that I exist in the midst of the land, not just up there in heaven, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a living presence. That's the second Uman Teda. And then before plague number seven, in the next three, you will know that there's no God like me. So it sounds like there are other forces, but there's no God like me. Those are the three Uman Tedas. And God said to Moshe, I multiply the miracles in Egypt in order that you speak about me to your children and to your grandchildren. That's the, that, that's the given reason for the plagues. It's not that's saving us. It's to, to, uh, to explain God to the world, to demonstrate God's prowess to the world. So Moshe says to God in that context, since the whole purpose of taking us out of Egypt was that the Egyptians should know who you are, your values, your power, etc. We tell our children, but now you're telling you're going to kill, you're going to kill everybody off. So what's going to happen is that the Egyptians will say that either you couldn't handle it, or you had bad intentions from they'll say bad things about you. And given the fact that you've spent a lot of time expressing your belief that the entire episode of the Exodus was that people should say important and good things about you, how powerful you are, you'll be defeating your own purposes. And therefore, don't think about, you know, don't let the anger overcome what's in your own best interests. That's a, it's a two-pronged argument over here. One is that you actually have a, a, a relationship with these people which you can't divest yourself of because it's a very deep relationship. You've saved them. Having saved them, I would say even more than that, having saved them, you also take on a certain amount of, of, of responsibility. That's an important point. It's like adopting somebody. If you adopt a child, then you're responsible for the child. It's an act, it's an act of great kindness to do that, but it also, by the nature of it, it also imposes on you a deep obligation. So that's the first argument. The second argument is, forget about them. Don't think about yourself and your reputation. Why should they say, Birah Hotziyam? Here it's possible, possible. Not my usual approach, but it's possible. Because the Chumash says that God said to Moshe earlier that I will visit the plagues upon Egypt and against the gods of Egypt, Ani Hashem. I will, I will declare judgments against the gods of Egypt. The Chumash never explicitly actually talks about the gods of Egypt and how the plagues are a punishment upon the gods of Egypt, but the students of the ancient Near East and Egypt, Egyptology and all that have made the point that some of the plagues seem to be directed against the gods of Egypt. Most interesting in this respect, I remember my mother teaching me this when I was a little kid, is that the ninth plague is the plague of darkness. The Egyptian god, the, the Egyptian god of light is named Ra. Ra. In, in English, R-A. Ra. And it's interesting, there are many, many plays in the Exodus narrative on the word Ra. One of them is here. Why should the Egyptians say 
And so it could be that Ra'ah is actually is actually a place. The Egyptians will say that he took them out of Egypt. After all, why did that God allow allow them to go? Because he took them out with the with the ascent, I would say. It's my own reading, but I think it makes sense. With the with the ascent of because our God allowed them to go. Because our God knew that in the, in the mountains they would all die anyway. And this way, they would be, the Israelites would be, uh, would be afflicted, punished, etc. So, wh- but why should they say that? You, the whole purpose was to fight the gods of Egypt. Was to show your superiority, as you said. You, you know that there is no god like me. We say it in the, in the Shira as well, and in their prayers. Micha mocha ba'elim Hashem. What does that mean? Micha mocha ba'elim Hashem. Who is like you among the elim? Elim of gods. That presupposes there are other gods, obviously. But this is the best god. That's what Michamocha means. Michamocha ba'elim Hashem. So Moshe, the first argument is essentially A, they're yours, they'll tell me they're mine, and B, it's not in your own self-interest. You know, I'll tell you where you have a similar argument in the, in the, in the Bible. A very similar argument. Well, I think you have it in, actually in several places. But usually not in conjunction with God. This is very audacious on its part, I would say. But we have it in terms of appealing to a higher power. Two stories come to mind immediately. One is the story of David and Naval in the book of Shmuel. Chapter 25 of the first book of Shmuel, Naval is a very wealthy landowner. David's on the run from Saul in these stories. And so David is getting more and more desperate. He has his first, he has this little, little bunch of, little army. David has an army. There's the 400 soldiers, the 600 soldiers. Basically, they're a bunch of criminals. That's where they come. But, but they're all on the run from the government. So they, they, they all, they all sort of, they're attracted to David, who's also on the run. He's on, he's, he's wanted by the by, by Saul. So he has to run away. I'm not saying he's guilty, but he's wanted. So the people all join with David. Meanwhile, David's getting very. David has to feed. He's got a 400, 600 men. You got to feed them with it, right, with their families. So to the story, a very famous story of Naval, Naval the Carmelite, chapter 25, David sends messages to, to Naval, who's very wealthy. He says, you know, you should know, he says, that we've been protecting you all this time. We've been protecting you. We didn't say anything, we never asked you for anything, we've been protecting you. And now we hear you having, you know, you had a good year, so maybe you want to give a little bit of something or other, to your, to, your, to your servant or your son David or what they call him so Naval says what is this he says nowadays every, every slave rises up against his master I'm not, I don't even know, I don't know who David even is so get lost so they leave go back to David and David when he hears this after he had so politely entreated Naval <coughs> sometimes you could buy these uh, see people's homes sometimes they put up on the door on the house, when you come in, the little half of a pasuk from the book of Samuel, Peace unto you, peace unto your house, peace unto all that you have. That was actually David's speech, message of speech to Naval, when he first meets him. Peace unto you, peace unto your house, peace unto all that you possess. Triple shalom. And when they come back and they tell David what Naval had said, what does David do? To his 400 men, he instructs them, put on your, uh, put on your weapons, get, get your weapons on, 
We're going to massacre the plant. We're going to kill them all. It's going to massacre or kill all of them. Not exactly a message of peace. I mean, it's a, this, the story, of course, is the book of Shmuel. The maestro was writing it. I mean, this is unbelievable. There's always critiques of this. Nuances right and left. In any event, what happens in the story? So meanwhile, Naval has a wife. What's her name? Abigail. Abigail, Abigail, right. She's very clever. And someone says to her, you better act quickly because David sent these men and your, my master, Naval, spoke very rudely to them. And the truth is that they actually did protect us. They protected us the whole time. They were helping us out. So Abigail rushes off. She gets all kinds of provisions without telling her husband, who's partying away. And she gets some people and she goes down the mountain and she sees David coming down with his soldiers on the way to the plantation to kill everybody. She jumps off, she falls down to the ground and she speaks to David. It was a very brilliant speech. She says to him, it's all my fault, she says. I am guilty, it's all my fault. I didn't know you had come. Translation, we can make a deal. That's the translation of it. We, we can make a deal. And pay no attention to my husband, Naval. Naval Shemo His name is Naval, but Nivalaimo. He's a disgusting person, she says. He's a disgusting guy. Pay no attention to him. But here I brought all kinds of food to you, and I brought all kinds of things to you. Please forgive me. And then she says, and furthermore, she says, it's a bad idea to kill, to kill, to kill everybody. I don't want this to be a stumbling block for you in the future. It won't look good on your uh, resume, you know. You look at the accomplishments of King David, you know, captured Jerusalem and, and uh, takes care of this and does tzedek, uh, massacred an entire Jewish village. That doesn't look good. On the resume, it looks bad. So therefore, I would, I would advise you not to do it. Oh, and then she says, thank God you came to me, he says. In other words, there you have a very brilliant entreaty to the king, which has two parts to it. Number one is, actually more than two, one is we can make a deal, forget him, we'll bypass him. She ends up with a little speech by saying, and when things go well, you should remember me, right? That's what she says. What happens later, by the way? Yeah, how, they get married. How do they get married, actually? I don't mean who performs the wedding, but what happens? Say for Shmuel. There's nothing like it, actually. I mean, it's, what happens is Navo is she's given away a lot, a lot of the stuff, which she, you know he's a very, he's a miser. But she, she give, but he, he's drinking away like crazy. She tells him nothing, and then it said when the wine left him, so he's like a hangover. When he finally, at the moment that the wine left him, she informs him, "I've given away this, that, the next thing." At which point he goes into cardiac arrest. He's sick for a few days. And he dies. Second he dies, there's a knock on the door. You know, who is it? It's David's messengers. So she's already probably packed her bags already, and she's off to marry David. It's just, that's a typical Shmuel story. You have to wonder, did she kill him? In other words, she, effectively she kills him. I mean, you know, David says, oh, thank God, and we'll avenge my... That's a typical story. Now, but the point of Abigail, of course, is that the, the, the prayer of Abigail... Is, is a prayer which appeals to right and wrong, but it also appeals to the practicalities of David. It looks bad on your record. By the way, I think the other story that comes to mind, which is very similar, of someone who appeals to a higher authority, 
not so much on the basis of morality, but on the basis of practicality, and that is to say, what is good for you, is a story that we all read pretty recently. It's called Megillah Esther. When Esther appeals to the king to save the Jews, it's not because the Jews are so wonderful. She says nothing about the Jews being wonderful. She says something different. There's a wicked man out there who's out to get me, and by implication, the wicked man out there who's out to get me is the same wicked man who's out to get you. He's out to get you as well. That's the whole That's how Esther sets it up. That Haman already is, can be seen by the king as a threat to the king. This is a very common theme, but those cases where the David Achashverosh are human kings. What's remarkable over here is that Moshe actually calls God out on this. What is this? What kind of behavior? It's not so different from Abraham's speech to God. What kind of, God, what kind of just king are you? How you? Shall the judge of the world not do justice? The two of the prime examples of, maybe the two prime examples of prayer in the Chumash are very striking. They're very bold. They're very, uh, you know, confrontational. That's the first argument. Now Moshe has a second argument, which is also caused, you know, then the second argument is in 13, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, you swore to them, and you spoke to them, and you said, You made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about their descendants, and you promised to give them the land, and they'll inherit the land forever. So therefore, you can't destroy them for a different reason, because you really have, a, you have to keep your promises. You're God. You've got to be honest, keep your promises, and therefore, you have no choice but to save them and to bring them into the land. That's the other argument. The implication, of course, is that Moshe is simply refusing God's offer. I'll make you a great nation. Moshe says, well, who, 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 who are we kidding? Make me a great nation. You, be, you said you're going to increase their, their descendants. Our, here you have a whole people. I'm just one person. So it can't be me. And therefore, since you promised, since you're God, even if you're not God, you have to keep your promises, keep your oath. So God relented of the evil. God had spoken to do to God's people. So the Chumash actually confirms Moshe's argument. These are God's people. This is Moshe's prayer pretty good, you know, he's on the spot he's pretty good, he's great skill to be able to focus in on the arguments in defense of the people that's, that's the story now the important point I mentioned last week is this that that God relented of the evil that God sought to do to God's people does not mean that God is saying everything's okay God is not saying anything of the sort relenting of the evil means determining not to completely destroy them. That doesn't mean that God will not punish them, God will punish them, etc. However, the first hurdle has been, and now Moshe goes down the mountain. And the significance, this week, I think we started last week with these, with these verses, correct? You tell me, I, don't, I have no memory of this anymore, but I think we started last week. If not, we can look at it now, but the point is that here's the important point about the literary point about the story Moshe goes down the mountain knowing that the people will not be destroyed the the survival of the people is not an issue in this particular narrative they're going to survive in one form or another so that's not the question the question will be 
survive in what state? You know, survival can't really be seen as a goal, you know? I mean, that, I mean it's, a, it's, a, it's necessary, obviously. It's a goal in the sense that it's necessary. But many things survive. So the question is, given the, given the assumption that we can survive, the question is, what will be the relationship of, of the people with, with, uh, with, with God? We all know the story of the golden calf, and I've said it a million times, it's probably the most important story of the Torah once you get out of Genesis because it actually defines Israel's relationship to God forever and the important point about the golden calf there are hundred important points but one of them is this the story of the golden calf is not a story that's just there it has a very particular place in the Chumash it's a story first of all that is smack in between the instructions to build the Mishkan and the building of the Mishkan that's the first point and the second point is it's a story that takes place shortly after, not just the Mishkan's instructions, but after the Ten Commandments and the following Book of the Covenant that runs up to and including chapter 24. So it's right after the Sinai, and Sinai is called, in the words of the Torah, the, the tablets of Sinai are called Shnei Luchot Habrit, the tablets of the Covenant. So Sinai is a covenant. It's a permanent relationship with God, a two-sided relationship. What the golden calf threatens to do is to rupture the relationship between Israel and God. And secondly, it also threatens, actually implicitly and very shortly explicitly, to preclude the building of any kind of mishkan. The golden calf episode will make it seems impossible to build a mishkan. Now how will the golden calf episode make it impossible to build a mishkan? Abu would do that. What? Because they threw all the gold and they needed to build the Mishkan. But they have more gold. They mm-hmm. probably have more gold. You never give away all your gold. You know what I mean? You always have some in, in reserve. <laughs> they have other gold. They do have other gold. We know that. No, that's not the issue. How does it practically speaking preclude the Mishkan? It doesn't preclude it yet, but it will. They don't have the Ten Commandments. That's right, because Moses will break them. Moses will break the tablets. <coughs> what do we know about the tablets? What does the Torah say about the tablets? They're the work of God. The Torah mentions it twice. The tablets are the tablets of God and the writing is the writing of God. Which means you can't replace them. It's the only piece of the Mishkan that is not replaceable. Everything else can be built by the Betzalel, the workers. They can build anything. Except they can't build one thing. They can't build the tablets. So when, God, when Moses breaks the tablets... In effect, he's saying there will not be a Mishkan. There cannot be a Mishkan. Except if God grants you a second set of tablets. And given God's disposition in these chapters, it doesn't seem very likely that God would give Israel a second set of tablets. Okay. But the important point is, for our purposes, in the, in the, in the story of Exodus, the Sefer Shvot, the important point is that the story actually, in a sense, begins with the knowledge that God won't destroy the people. So let's very quickly, I think we started this last week. I'm sure we started this last week. But let's go quickly through this now. And now we have, we'll continue with this story for quite a while. I think next week, though, is the last class before Pesach. We will do something on the Haggadah next, next Thursday. <coughs> something on the Seder. But then, then we'll return to it. And it's not, it's not actually irrelevant to what we're studying anyway. So the, let's begin with very quickly with verse number 15. Vayifen vayered Moshe Menahar. Okay, so we're going to 
Farukhod Maseru Himeimo. We are mixed up. 32 verse 15. We're going to move very quickly through this. I think we did some of this last week. We did this last. Let's go very quickly through this and we'll continue. So the story begins, I would say begins because God has agreed not to destroy them. Moses has the tablets. Vayifen, Moses turned, the, turned, turned around and he went down the mountain carrying the tablets. Tablets of testimony, it says. Tablets written on both sides. From this side and that side they are written. And the next verse is, Vahuchot Maseh, Elohim, aim of the tablets, were the work of God. Vahmichtav, and the writing, was the writing of God. Charuta Vahuchot, inscribed on the tablets. So we talked last week about these two verses at some length, actually. Very important verses. That, and the main point was that, the main point I was pushing last week, is that when Moses goes down the mountain, and what the Chumash wants to emphasize is that when he goes down the mountain how completely alone he is. There's nobody else. We, have, we remember in the Torah we saw back in chapter 24 when he leaves the people he leaves them with instructions. The instructions were I'm going away for a while going up to, back up to the mountain chapter 24 I leave with you he said two people Aaron is one of them Aaron and the other is Chur. This is chapter 24. Which verse is that? On page 165. And it's the verse number 14. Chapter 24, verse 14. To the elders, Moshe said, Wait here. Till I return. Until we return. We being himself. But he goes in verse 13 with his disciple Joshua. His attendant, Yoshua. Goes with him. And Moses went up to the mountain. Chapter 24, verse 13. Moses got up with Yoshua, his attendant, his valet, his servant, disciple, pupil. He, Moses, went up to the mountain. So where is Joshua standing all time? Yeah. On the foot of the mountain. He didn't go to the mountain. He, he goes with him. He accompanies him, but he stops. He stops at a certain point, like the Akedah. He stops, and Moshe goes further. But if he, Moses leaves with them two people to, to be their judges in his Moses' absence, Aaron and Chur. Whoever has a problem, Yigash Aleyem, should approach them. That's what Moshe says. So now he comes down the mountain. If Moses didn't know anything, he doesn't know everything yet. But he would be expecting come back down the mountain. When he gets to the bottom, maybe his disciple Yoshua is still there. And they walk together back to the camp. They meet Aaron and Chor. They just motion talks to them what happened in my absence. Any interesting problems, cases, what happened? Okay, thank you very much for your service. I'm back. That's what could have happened. That's not what's going to happen, of course. When Moses comes down the mountain, and the Chumash wants to remind us that he left behind Aaron and Chor. How does the Chumash remind us that he left behind Aaron and Chor? It doesn't say Aaron. It doesn't say Chor. But it does say something else in chapter 32, verse number 15. It says something very interesting, actually. So I talked about this last week. I'll just mention it briefly again, which is this. When Moses came down the mountain, he carried with him the tablets of God. The tablets were written, it says, on both sides. Mishnei Evraham. On both sides. Then the Chumash adds, Mizeh u Mizeh heim ketuvim. They are written Mizeh here. 
and Mizeh over there. They're written on both sides, Mizeh or Mizeh. The question I asked last week is, why does the Chumash say they're written Mizeh or Mizeh when the previous phrase is they're written on both sides? Obviously, if they're written Shnei Evrihem, that means they're written, <coughs> by definition, Mizeh or Mizeh. So we talked about that at length last week. I want to repeat just one point from last week, which is this. That the Chumash wants to repeat the phrase Mizeh or Mizeh. Because Mizeh or Mizeh is a phrase that appears earlier in the Torah. It appears actually in chapter 17 of this book. And the story, which is a very important story, which has deep connections to the golden calf. And that is the story of Amalek. In the story of Amalek, Moshe ascends the mountain when Amalek attacks Israel in the second half of chapter 17 and the Torah says the strangest thing when Moshe would raise his hands up the Gavar Yisrael when Moshe would put his hands down Yaniach Yado the Gavar Amalek Amalek would win and then it says Moses' hands were heavy because he couldn't keep his hands up so what's he going to do? so they put a stone, he sat down on a stone and Aaron and Chur, those two people Tamchu B'Yadav supported his hands one of them Mizeh and one of them Mizeh 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 so his hands remained steady until nightfall and Joshua weakened Amalek by the sword so in the, the first instance of Mizeh Mizeh refers to Aaron and Hur who are Moses' support now Moses comes down the mountain he carries the tablets that are written Mizeh Mizeh what is the implication in the Chumash that the only support Moses has in the story are the tablets what supports him is, is, is the Torah, basically. That's a very important point. There, I've met people in my life like that. They lost everything. But they still have one thing, they have their Torah. And the Torah kept them going. And by implication, of course, what, what, what happened to Aaron and Hur? What happened to the two people we left behind? So we don't know what happened to Chor. Chor simply is not mentioned. He disappears. Chor is never mentioned. But Aaron, we know what happened to Aaron in the absence of Moses. He built the golden calf. We talked about that. That's the previous few verses. So his own brother builds the golden calf. Chor has disappeared off the face of the earth. The Medrash hasn't been murdered. The text hasn't disappeared. Chor is actually very interesting because we have Chor in, in a different context in these chapters. Actually, he's mentioned even earlier. Earlier than this. Where's the name Chur come up earlier? It's Betzalel's grandfather. Betzalel ben Uri ben Chur. It's hardly an accident. Chur is the same name. Maybe the same person. He's Betzalel's grandfather. It means, probably the Midrash picks up, he wasn't involved in the golden calf. That's, that's what the Midrash is saying. He maybe even resisted. But he's not involved. So Chur is, but he disappeared. He's, there is no Chur. Aaron sold him out. Those are the Mizeh Mizeh. So he, did, he has neither of those two, but he does have one other person. He has his faithful disciple Joshua. And that's the next story. So the next verse, talked about this last week at some length. Talk, by he kasher, Moses comes down the mountain. In verse 17, so now he meets Joshua. By Yishma Yoshua, Joshua heard the people crying out. Joshua said to Moses, I hear the sound of war. Vayomer, he said, fact, let's say he could be Moses, not clear. He said, if it's Moses, 
No, it's not the sound of Gvura, the one who's winning, the Gavar. It's not the sound of the one who's winning. Vienkol, I know Chalusha. It's not the sound of the one who's weakened. Vayachaloshi Yoshua et Amalek. Both those two terms are from Amalek. But rather, Kol Anot Anochi Shomeya, I hear, here they translate the sound of song that I hear. Anot, they're translating as a song, which I don't like that translation. I don't think it means that note is more negative than song. I might say a tortured cry, I hear. In short, though, what Joshua why the, the important question is, why is this conversation here altogether? What do we need it for? Who cares what Yoshua said? Why is it important for the story? It's about the golden calf. Moses comes down the mountain, he goes to the calf, he sees them worshipping a golden calf. No, the Chumash introduces Yoshua into this story here. What is the point? Why mention Yoshua altogether? That's one answer. That's right. So one answer is because the Chumash is saying something about Yoshua for future reference. It means Joshua doesn't even know about the golden calf. He has no idea. He thinks they're screaming out. He can't figure it out. What is that noise? Maybe it's a war. After all, he is a general. That's what generals hear things. He's a general. So he's hearing the sound of war. Right? That's when we first meet Yoshua. He fights Amalek. The Amalek story is referenced right and left. He fights it. But that's one reason for it. That's a very important point. But there's another reason also. It's not just to set up Yoshua as the future leader because he wasn't involved in the golden calf. He doesn't know. That's all true. And he's waiting for Moses. Moses takes 40 days to come down. It means the man is waiting at the foot of the mountain for 40 days for him to return. Right? He didn't, he didn't go back in the interim, apparently. He stays, he's, he's waiting there like a faithful servant waiting at the foot of the mountain. There's another reason. And a very important reason. That is, what the Chumash is saying is that what Joshua is hearing and what Moses is hearing are not the same thing. It's actually a very important point. Last night we had a little program here, if anybody came to this. We're, doing, we're starting to do, among other things, place is getting extremely interesting, I must say. We are starting <laughs> to do um, programs on various people that have died fairly recently and to discuss what their, what their legacy is. In other words, what, do they, what were their struggles? What were their points of view? It's not intended to be a kind of eulogy for, for, or a, even an affirmation of all they did was correct but to figure out for someone who was not my teacher but taught others what is this person trying to say and we can try to uh, think about that accept, not accept so yesterday we did a program on Zalman Shechter Shechter Shalomi was actually the father of the so-called renewal movement in America very interesting person many positives, many negatives, whatever one of the questions was, it was the questions. The question is the following. Zalman Shechter Shalomi came from Europe. Came from a place of, of real learning. And I would add into that, into the pot. He's a European Jew. Comes to America. He has all these American, renewal movement is in American as apple pie, basically. How does that work? How does the, that, that was an excellent question, which they, I don't think anybody gave a very good answer to. But the answer is, that, that is a good question, but it's actually true of everybody. It's true of every single teacher. It's true of every person. Every person comes from a certain place. And that place is defining who they are. You know, someone said, asked me, what would Rabbi Soloveitchik say about some problem where you alive today? And my answer is, were you alive today, he wouldn't be Rabbi Soloveitchik. 
he'd be born at a different time, in a different place, different set of experiences. What do you think? That doesn't affect how you think. Of course it does, obviously. And therefore, how do you transmit who you are to somebody else who's not who you are? Coming from a totally different place. And that's true of everybody. But in the Chumash, actually, in terms of Moshe, it actually highlights it. That Moshe and Yoshua Yo- Yo- is going to succeed him. And as Nehi says, because he wasn't involved in the golden calf, he's a faithful pupil. But he's maybe the faithful pupil, but the Rebbe and the pupil are not on the same page. And that's the point over here. There's nothing more, never more alone than when you realize that your closest person has very little understanding of what you're all about. I won't say zero understanding, but very little understanding. And that's the point over here. Moses goes down this mountain, Vayifen, and as I mentioned last week, the first instance of the word Vayifen in the book of Exodus is found when Moses, the first time we see Moses going out to his people, the first, first, Moses went out to see his brethren, back in chapter 2, and he saw the Egyptian beating the Jew. Vayifen kovacho, he turned this way and that way, he saw there was nobody, and he kills the Egyptian. He sees there's nobody, could mean nobody to catch him, or you could see there's nobody to, to, to do anything. No one cares. The world is indifferent to the suffering of the Jews. So he stands up in a world which doesn't care, and he takes action, which actually changes the course of his life, because he has to run away from Egypt, and the rest of it is the story of Moshe. But this is the point over here. He's going down the mountain with the, the tablets of God, which he's going to break in a couple of verses, but he's actually alone. His brothers sold him out. Hur is gone. And the beloved disciple, the faithful disciple, who waits 40 days at the foot of the mountain, he doesn't hear what Moses hears. He hears of war. He's a general. Moses is not a general. Moses is a shepherd. They're hearing different things. In any event, now Moses, that's why it's here. It's here to underscore the aloneness. Now Moses gets close to the camp. Moses goes to the camp. And what does he see in the camp? Verse 20, bottom of 184, what does he see? He sees, he sees the golden calf. Verse 19. It's 19. What's interesting is when Moses drew near to the camp, what does he see? He sees Vayara Ta'ego Mukhalot. The Torah did not say he saw the golden calf and the worshippers. The Torah did not say he saw the golden calf and the proclamation, heard the proclamation, these are the gods who took you out of Egypt. The Torah did not say he saw people bowing down to the calf. There's nothing of that. Sacrifices, bowing down, proclamations. That's not what he sees. He sees one thing, it says the Chumash. He sees the calf, umecholot, the dancing. Umecholot means dancing or celebration or music. He sees the, that's what drives him nuts. He knew about the other stuff God told him. What he didn't appreciate was the passion. This he sees. He sees the deep involvement, the deep connection to this golden calf, at which point he gets angry. Moses got angry. He threw the tablets from his hands and he smashed them under the mountain. Next verse. So that's interesting. What angers him is not, it's the unbelievable connection that the people have to this calf. That he didn't know. He knew they worshipped it. He didn't, didn't appreciate the fact they were so deeply connected to it. And he breaks the tablets. Now he breaks them, it says, out of anger. The question is, to what extent it's just a fit of anger, and to what extent the breaking them has, a, I would say, a, a, a rational component. The Torah never faulted for breaking the tablets, by the way, ever. The Medrash raises the question. 
taking God, it's like taking a Torah but ten times more holy and taking smashing it burning it he walked in he t- saw they were dancing around whatever Torah he, or he, you know, dancing around whatever it was he took the Torah and he burnt it I mean this is smashing God the tablets are the work of God the Torah said. the Torah never faults him for it that's a very important message actually Torah never faults him so why not why if we want to give a rational explanation say he got angry but actually in, interesting in, in, in the in the in the version in Devarim in chapter 9 it's not anger it's a calculated move on his part he sees it he sees you have to smash them the point is that we can give many explanations but the, the point I would say the deeper point here is the following it's a great lesson that Moshe has taught us it's very simple the Torah itself can become idolatry that, that's the point that's a very important point the Torah itself can be Havodah because the Torah is in, 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 in and of itself is not actually holy it is holy because it reflects God's will and God's teachings but in a situation where those teachings will be used in a, in a perverted way that's what Moshe understood if Moses would give them the, 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 the Luchot well, what would he be saying in effect he'd be saying yeah he would be saying he'd be affirming the golden calf and probably the Torah itself turns in in that context something in service of the Yegum so he understands the obvious point in that case the Torah has no sanctity the, the tablets have no sanctity they are sanctity they bring you to God but if they push you away from God what sanctity do they have so he breaks the tablets and you never find in the Chumash any kind of condemnation of Moshe he's not condemned for it on the contrary he does what has to be done and not only does he do that now we have a very interesting verse this I know we didn't do last week verse number 20 Okay, now let's take a look at verse number two. Yes, secret man. I think that he knew, even though he knew God told him on the mountain that this was happening, I think it's like seeing. Seeing is different, that's true. Intellectual versus the. the A visceral response, right? That's also possible. That's also possible. It doesn't contradict what I said, but it's also very possible that. Yes. I think there's also some connection with the fact that he's just listened to God in his anger, and now. He's somehow communicating that, you know, his anger. It's just interesting to me that, that, you know, and he sort of talked God out of this angry place, and now this is a a burst or an outrage, and how those things are connected. Right, I mean, it's very striking that God is very angry on the mountain, Moses defending. Mm -hmm. I mean, it speaks to Moses' role as, he has two roles. One is to explain the word of God to the people, and the other is to justify the people to God that Moshe plays these two different roles well maybe he's almost transmitting some of that anger or showing showing the people what oh you're saying that that's also good right right that's true I talked him out of it this is what I that's right (laughs) it certainly is a um, confirmation let's say maybe even a justification of God's anger Moshe has exactly the same response that's in verse number 19 now verse number 20 says Vayikachat ha'ego asher asu he took the, the calf that they had made he burnt it in fire he crushed it up until into little pieces powder he threw it upon the water he made the Israelites drink it this is the version that we have in the book of Exodus in the book of Deuteronomy we have a different version which contradicts this one in Deuteronomy chapter 9 let's find that what is that? chapter 9 Devarim chapter 9 golden calf 
Right there, page 396. Moshe is talking to the people. Verse 21. Moshe talks in first person in Devarim. And concerning the sin that you made, the calf, I took it, I put it to the fire. I broke it into pieces. To was as fine as dust. And then Moshe says, I threw the dust into the brook that comes down from the mountain. What is the difference between the two stories? Yes? He doesn't have them drinking. What's the difference, right? In the, in the version of Deuteronomy, they don't drink it. In the version of Deuteronomy, I took it and I threw it into the brook that descends from the mountain. In the version in Shemot, in our version, he makes them drink it. What's the difference between throwing it into the brook that goes down from the mountain or making them drink it? Yes? Okay, I agree. You want to amplify? What, 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 where else do we have that, by the way? Sota. That's the Sota story. The Sota, the adulterous woman. You take the water, you take the God's name, actually, you, you write the name of God, you put it in the bitter waters and she drinks the bitter waters. The connection to Sota, which Rashi noted, is a very deep connection, actually, and it has enormous implications. The Sota, you can like the Sota, you can dislike the Sota. It's hard to like it too much, but the fact is, it's very important. It's a very important, very important law. And it has enormous implications for the, for the Chumash. The fact of the matter is, the difference is the following. Let me explain. In the book of Tevarim, if I take your sin and I throw it away, so Moshe, I took your sin, Moses takes the sin of the people, I took your sin, said Moses, and I threw it into the river. I threw it away, you know? That's one thing. But taking your sin and making you eat it or drink it is very different. Making you eat it or drink it means I make you take responsibility for it. You're drinking the, right, you you're drinking the waters, it's Sota. She's responsible, whatever her behavior was, the Torah holds her accountable. Moshe holds the people accountable in the book of Exodus. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is making a different point over there, which is, your sin is from the day I met you. And frankly, if it weren't for me, said Moses, who bails you out all the time, you would have been destroyed a long time ago. That's a different, that's a different idea. But over here, the context of this golden calf story in Shemot, in our story, it's not about Moses saving the people. It's about the people at the end of the day saving themselves. And saving yourself means taking responsibility. So the Sota connection actually is extremely interesting. We'll, we'll get back to the Sota connection. Um, it's also interesting for another reason. Actually, there are many interesting features of the Sota story. But one is also curious that the, the name of God is written down on a piece of parchment or paper or whatever it's written on and put inside the water. The curses actually are put in the water. You're drinking your own curses if you're guilty. But there you have also the idea of the safer, which you have over here. Moses, Moses breaks the tablets, okay? And over there he, you write on the name of God on a, on a parchment. You put it into the bitter waters. And we'll get back to the Sota. But the, the, short, the, the smaller point, important, Moshe says, comes down, he makes the people, he holds the people responsible for what they did. That's in verse number 20. 
Now in verse 21, now he approaches Aaron. Yes, Sigrid. Also in the second story, it's the, um, the water that came from the mountain, which is, here, I was on the mountain and. Yes, it is interesting, right. The, the brook that flows from the mountain. Which is God's place, and, you know, this way. Well, I don't think of it, though, as um, I grew up, you know, on a mountain with a creek, and you're going to drink that water. It, it comes to the. Like a, a, a stream that comes out of a mountain, eventually people drink from it. So is it like a, a gentler way of. You, the people are still going to get that. I mean, if this is a from a natural perspective, at all. I don't. I don't think it's more gentle over there. I, I don't think that. You don't think it's what? I don't think the story in Devarim is more gentle in any sense whatsoever. <laughs> I think, on the contrary, I think that. I think it's about Moshe represents it in those chapters as I saved you on many occasions by implication. If I, were I not around, you would have been long gone. And of course, the book of Devarim ends by Moshe saying, I'm not going to be around anymore, and this, these things might happen to you when I'm gone. The book contains within it, I would say, a whole set of chastisements of the people. Now, this is also chastising the people, but here he's assuming that actually they're capable of taking responsibility. So the first step is to go to the people. Notice that in verse number 20, right, he took the calf that they had, Asher Asu was plural, the calf that they had made, now in 21, he approaches the one who actually made it, namely his brother Aaron. Because Aaron is not spared over. Aaron made, made, Aaron made the golden calf. The Chumash now addresses this question. Moshe addresses the question, how could you do this? By Yom Moshe on the top of page 185, What did the people do to you? What did they do to you that you allowed them you brought upon them, to Allah, you brought upon them this terrible sin. What, what could the circumstances be? What was your thinking here? Now, Aaron explains his thought. As you say nowadays, the thought process of Aaron is now explained in verse 22. Aaron said, Please do not be angry, my Lord. You know these people, they are Barah. Here they translate, they are, they are bent on evil. Birah means bent on evil, connected to evil, following evil, in a place of evil. In short, what he says is, the first point he makes is, you know the nature of the people. Let's start with that. The people are a certain way. They are birah, okay? And maybe once again, a play on the, the birah, as I mentioned in the very beginning, robbing the sun god of Egypt. But it means evil. They're in a bad place. They said to me, Make for us a God who will walk before us. For Moses the man, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. In other words, it started off, he said, as a replacement for you, Moshe. Moses the man, we don't know what happened to him. Moses the man is mortal. Moses the man can disappear. Human beings are fragile. We don't know what happened to him, so therefore we don't want a person to be our connection to God. We want, rather, a, a God. For Marlaham, I said to them, Lemizahav, I said, who has gold? Hitbaraku vayitnuwi. They took off their gold and gave it to me. Vashrichayu vaish. I threw the gold into the fire. Vayetzeo egel azeh. 
and this calf came out. Now the question is, what do you make of Aaron's statement? I threw it into the fire, and the calf came out. That sounds like magic, magic or, or accident. But the Chumash tells a different story, actually. The Chumash earlier, when it describes how the golden calf was made, on page 183, has quite a different tale over here, which is verse number 4 in 183, chapter 32. There it says, All the people took off the gold, their golden jewel, earrings or, or, or uh, jewelry. They brought it to Aaron. And in verse number 4, he took the gold from them. He took it from them. A cheret, best translation of cheret, is a sculpting tool. He took it from them and he fashioned it with a sculpting tool and he made it into a molten calf. Sculpting tool is hardly the same as I threw it into the fire and poof, this is what came out. So how then can we explain Aaron's statement I threw it into the fire and this calf came out. There are two ways to explain it. They don't actually contradict each other. But they're two different. One way to explain it is that Aaron is attempting to make himself, to relieve himself of any responsibility for what happened. He makes it sound like I didn't really mean to make it is a way of saying he, he wants to blame the people. These people are in a bad state. You know the way they are. They came to me with this request. So I said, does anybody have gold? Right? That's not what he said in the, in the first story. He says, take off the gold from your, your wives, your sons and daughters. Parku is a command. Here he says, I said to them, who has gold? Who has gold is not a command to bring gold, but it's a question. Does anybody have gold? You want a gold? You want a, who has gold? He didn't say bring it. Aaron doesn't command them in his, in his account. But they brought it to me. I took it into the fire and this came out. It's not the same as I made it. I molded it. So there we have a typical example. He's not the first to fail to take full responsibility for what you've done wrong by blaming the other person. It started probably, it starts earlier, in the, it starts with the first story of the Torah, basically. Why did you eat of the fruit? The woman you put by my side, she gave it to me. So... <laughs> It's God's fault. Woman, you put by my side. What do you want from me? You gave me this. And not only that, and the woman. It's not me, it's her. Woman, what did you do? The snake has seduced me. It's always somebody else's fault. Where the truth answer is, there are always factors, but yes, I take responsibility. At the end of the day, I did violate the command. So Aaron, whether it's the first human being, or whether it's King Saul, the people did it. It's that we've heard this story before. That's one way to read Aaron. And the person that makes such an excuse, and I would say the following, such a person who makes such excuses probably shouldn't be the, uh, a leader to begin with. Certainly not a kind of autonomous leader. Aaron, at least in the story back in the burning bush, was never God's intention in, the, in that version. There are different versions within the Bible. But the version of the snare, God doesn't want Aaron. God wants Moses and only Moses Moses refuses to go, so God says, take Aaron, he's a very good talker. I know, he's, I, know, I, I know he's a good talker. So here, one way to read this is that the Torah condemns Aaron, and we'll see this, there certainly is a condemnation over here. Uh, it's, it, as we studied last time, it's more nuanced, because the Torah earlier does 
sympathize to some extent with Aaron's predicament. He's in a very tough place. But here, saying, I threw it into the fire and this came out, can be seen as evasion of responsibility. However, there is an additional way to read what Aaron says, which I think is true. There's some truth to what he says. It's not true that he threw it to the fire and poof, it just came out that way, because the Chumash said he crafted it. But he's saying something which actually is true. Which is, what he's saying is, Moses comes down the mountain and he sees all the people dancing around a golden calf. He says to Aaron, what is going on here? What, how, how, did this, how could this kind of thing happen? And Aaron's basic answer is, let me tell you something. I didn't, I didn't anticipate it. I never expected this to, to be the outcome. Which is actually very true. When you read what he says in the first account, in chapter 32, he is trying to redirect it towards God. He maybe is trying to stall. He's not pushing it. Maybe he gives them a, a directive that's hard to keep. Take the most precious objects from your wife or from your, from your children that represents their freedom and their destiny, or whatever it is. I mean, but I think the truth of the matter is, there is a truth to what he says. It's not technically true. It's a lie. But there is a truth to it, which is, the truth is, I had no idea that this would ever happen. I didn't expect this outcome. That, that's not a justification, but it's an explanation as to, as to what is taking place over here. In any event, now the Chumash says, now that's what Aaron said to Moshe. Now we see the story through Moshe's eyes. Vayar Moshe ta'am ki Moses saw that the people were porua. What does porua mean? Wild. Wild. Where do we have the, term, the word porua in the Chumash? We have it in two places, actually. Esav is never called Parua. Para Adam is an Aleph. It's an Aleph, not an Ayin. That's Yishmael. A wild ass of a man is Para Adam. Maybe they're related, but it's with an Aleph. We have Sota. We have two places. Two chapters back to back in the book of Amibah. One again is Sota. Upara and Rosai. He takes the woman's hair, Upara. Maybe he uncovers her hair or he, he makes it wild. That's one. And you have the chapter afterwards. That's chapter six. Next chapter. The Nazarites, the Nazir. Gadel Pera Sa'aro Show. His hair is to be grown wild. The priest, growing wild hair, is a Nazarite. It suggests that there are no boundaries, actually. <coughs> no boundaries. It's also the. Parua is also a sign of. of uh, not cutting your hair is also in the Chumash a sign of uh, mourning it's a sign of mourning of taking a haircut so here once again you have a soto term it's interesting we have a soto term appearing again Moses saw the people of Porua and the second half of verse number 25 is very interesting for Aaron had made them wild the JPS translates so that they were a menace to any who might oppose them <coughs> I don't know where that translation comes from it strikes me as a very very poor translation I would say even an incorrect translation cannot possibly mean a menace to any who might oppose them yes others that, on the bottom JPS has another 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 it means Ushim Sabakamaya means as an as an object of derision is correct. 
I didn't see that on the bottom. That's correct. First translation, I don't know what they're saying, but the correct translations on the bottom of the page means as a shemet, as, a, as an unseemly thing for those. In other words, that the parua is, is presented as being negative. It's a, a disgrace in the eyes of those who would oppose them, rise up against them, right? And it means it's a, a bad mark against them. The wildness, the lack of discipline, it also is dangerous. If you have no discipline, an army works with discipline. If you have no discipline, life works for the most part with discipline. No discipline, you, can't, you, you, you become very vulnerable. And notice that the Chumash, in verse number 25, right? Moses saw the people were wild, and the, the Torah adds, for Aaron had made them wild. Pro Aaron, Ushim coming. I'm here. I may have mentioned this last week. We have something extremely interesting about the Chumash. Extremely interesting. And that is the Hebrew. The verb is para. Para is a verb. It means to be, to be wild, to, to make wild. Para means to act in a wild way. Pirao in Hebrew <coughs> is, the Hebrew is a very compact language, is paraoto. means to make him wild. At Pirao Aaron, he had made them wild, right? He had made the, Aaron had made the people wild as a disgrace unto their enemies. But in Hebrew, the way you usually write Pirao, Para Oto, or Otam. Para Oto it is in this case. Uses the singular for Israel. Collective, the collective is, is singular. But it's usually written in Hebrew. If you know Hebrew, you simply add the Vav. Pei Reish Ayin Vav. Right? That's the way you would normally write it. You see that? Yeah. Pirao? But our text does not have it written that way. Our text just writes it Pei Reish Ayin Hey. Now what is the hay? The hay is what's called an, an archaic hay. In archaic Hebrew, instead of the possessive, he had caused them. The them is the, the object. Instead of the object, them, written with a vav, because it's a contraction. Para'oto is para'o. You have the, sometimes you have the archaic hay, which is written hay. The question is, but normally in the Chumash, very, very rarely do you have the archaic hay. You typically have only the vav. So the question is, why did the Torah, one might say, leave in the hay? Why didn't the Torah simply correct it or bring it up to modern writing of those times, which is a vav? But the answer is, you have it, it's interesting, you have it in, in several places, many places in the Bible. It's not just a matter of, of language, because, of course, you would expect to read peresh ayin vav, it's clear that the Chumash left in the hay for a very simple reason. Because when you read it, pra'o with a hay, if you look at the word pra'o with a hay, what, what are the letters of pra'o with a hay? Pe, resh, ayin, hay. Para. The, the, the Chumash intentionally, without question, writes it, for Aaron had made them wild, keep pra'o our own. One might say, reading in a kind of, kind of hyper, hyper-literal way, keep pra'o our own. For Aaron had acted like Pharaoh. And not only did Aaron act like Pharaoh, but how in fact did Aaron make the golden calf? How did he really make it? Didn't just come out. What does the Chumash say? Vayotzer oto bacheret. He used a sculpting tool. What is the word for sculpting tool? Cheret. Where else do we have the word cheret in the Torah? 
about the word Khartoumim? What does a Khartoumim? Pharaoh's magicians are called Khartoumim. There's a connection between Kheret and Khartoumim without question. My po- point is very simple. What is the larger point over here? Aaron makes the golden calf with a Kheret and the effect is Karo. In short, here's a very simple point about the gold. What is the significance of the golden calf? Here's the significance of the story. Let me say it this way, since we're coming close to Pesach. The book of Exodus has two parts. Part one and part two. Part one is the Exodus from Egypt. That's chapter one through chapter 15. Crossing the sea is chapter 14, the song of the sea. The song of the sea splits the book into two pieces. It completes part one. Part two is the beginnings of the journey through the desert, which encompassed the beginning of walking through the desert, the battle against Amalek, just, judgment, justice, setting up a system of justice, the Ten Commandments, the laws of Sinai, the, the command to build the Mishkan, the golden calf, the building of the Mishkan. The second half of the book of Exodus is not about physically leaving Egypt behind. We leave Egypt in the first half of the book. But the second half of the book has a different topic, which is, I would say, the spiritual exodus from Egypt. The spiritual exodus from Egypt means, okay, you're not in Egypt, but you've got to be in a different place. Not just physically in a different place. Your head has to be in a different place. At the end of the day, the opposite of Egypt in the book of Exodus, if you think of the book of Exodus as a, a discrete book, one book, the opposite of being in Mitzrayim, the opposite of Egypt is where? It's the Mishkan. It's living around the tabernacle. Both of them involve, the beginning of the book of Exodus involves building. You build the store cities for Pharaoh. But you build them as slaves. It's coercive. <coughs> There's no choice whether to work or not. And not only that, it's clear from the narrative of Exodus that Pharaoh himself couldn't care less about the, the, the cities. Because when he wants to put the people down, he takes away their straw. And they can't produce the quota of bricks. He's not interested in more bricks. He could have gotten more bricks. He could have said, work harder, produce 20 bricks an hour, not 15. He doesn't care about the number. He doesn't actually care about the work. The work is an excuse to break them. That's when you work for Pharaoh. When you work to build the Mishkan, there's exactly the opposite thought, which is, it's called Mulechet Machshev, it's thoughtful, purposeful work. And the entire Mishkan, with one exception, is built by volunteers. Nidiv Leif, Nidava. It's all voluntary. There's no compulsion. So the book of Exodus actually begins with working for Pharaoh. It ends in building God's home, the purpose of which is I shall dwell in their midst, plural, people's midst. That's the idea. The problem is, what the golden calf story is about is, it's the thing that prevents you from ever getting to the Mishkan. It prevents you both, conceptually prevents you, because you're worshipping an eagle. It actually prevents you from a pragmatic standpoint. You actually can't build it. Because Moses just broke the, go- the tablets. So you can't actually build the Mishkan. So the question is, so the point being, if you dance around a golden calf and you say to the calf, these are the gods that took us out of Egypt. When God says in the first of the Ten Commandments, I am the God that took you out of Egypt, what, what in the world could that mean? It means that you're still in Egypt. And the very things you build the golden calf with are the gold that you got from Egypt. It means, in a sense, if you're going to take the gold of Egypt and build a golden calf, you're defeating the whole purpose of the Exodus. You might as well be in Egypt. One might say that, from a spiritual standpoint, 
you are in Egypt. So therefore, it makes total sense that the one who makes the golden calf is none other than Pharaoh. Not that Aaron is Pharaoh, but that in this verse, the Torah wants to connect us to Paro. So there's Aaron earlier making it with a cheret, and over here, the Torah says, Ki pro'o Aaron Aaron pro'o. Aaron had made them wild, undisciplined, and as a, as a, I would say as a disgrace to their enemies. He had made them vulnerable in a sense, but he, in the important point being, he had effectively brought us back to Mitzrayim. That's the situation. So the Torah in these verses is focusing on Aaron, but earlier in verse number 20, the focus is not on Aaron, because the Chumash does not want him to mislead us and think that because Aaron was a sinner, the people are absolved from guilt. Their leader, their leader made a mistake, so we're innocent. Now the Chumash never suggests such a thing. The Chumash does not suggest that Aaron is off the hook because the people did it, and the Torah does not suggest that the people are off the hook because Aaron did it. Now it is interesting to note that never in the Chumash, in these stories, in, the, in Sefer Shemot, there's never a suggestion that Aaron is going to be deposed as the high priest. Aaron, Aaron keeps his job. He's, he's the priest beforehand, and he's the priest afterwards. And there's never a suggestion in the Torah, I would say the Torah, but the Chumash, that Aaron is in trouble. Now that's not true in the, in the account in, in Sefer Dvarim. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse number 20, that's different. There the, Moses said, in the verse prior to throwing the golden calf down the, in the water that descends from the mountain, there it says, And concerning Aaron, says the Torah in Sefer Tzvarim, chapter 9, verse 20, <coughs> God was very angry at Aaron, even to destroy him. I prayed for Aaron at that time. I prayed even for Aaron at that time. In Sefer Devarim, God wants to kill Aaron. And Moses intercedes on his behalf. All of that is conspicuously absent in Sefer Shemot. And the question is why? So let me tell you what I think about that and we'll have to stop. We'll, we'll continue. Well, we'll have to do one week on the Haggadah. So we'll, it's, all, it's all related actually. But okay, but anyway. I'll make one little point about why Aaron actually is never threatened over here. Because the point I think of Sefer Shemot is the issue in Sefer Shemot, unlike Sefer Dvarim. In Sefer Dvarim, the people are threatened with extinction in Sefer Dvarim. Moses doesn't pray for the people on the mountain. In the account of Dvarim, he doesn't pray for them on the mountain. He waits till later to pray. I will destroy them. Moses turns around and walks down the mountain. The issue in Sefer Dvarim, as I mentioned, is will the people survive or not? Or will they be wiped out? That's Sefer Dvarim. The issue in the book of Exodus is not survival. Survival is assured. It's taken, that issue is taken off the table even before Moses goes down the mountain. The issue is not survival. The issue is the nature of the relationship. Now, who is Aaron to begin with in the book of Exodus? Aaron is a person who actually represents the people. Moses does not represent the people in any manner, shape, or form. Moses is the ultimate outsider. He's not one of them. His first time he ever meets the people, they say, who made you the boss? That's the first words out of their mouth. What, you're going to kill me the way you killed the Egyptian? <coughs> Aaron is chosen, Dafka, because he's one of the people. And you can see the way he talks. He sees himself as representing the people. That's, his, that's how he sees his leadership. I represent the people. You know the way they are. His thinking is, 
<coughs> the people on a level of 1 to 10 are, are at 1. What Aaron's thinking is, let's see if we can raise them to 3 or 4. That's, that's the mindset of Aaron. That's how he works. That's the way I would say most of the leaders work. And the fact of the matter is, without getting into the conversation now, because it's late, <coughs> it's, it's, always, it's always justified, and there is some justification to it. I don't, I don't say no. But that's not Moses' leadership. Moses is not saying they're at the level of one, let's get them to three or four. Moses is saying, if they can be ten, let's shoot for ten. Anything less than ten, Moshe will be disappointed. That doesn't lead to a happy camper. He's not a happy person. But that's the way he understands it. This is what we can, let's say what we could, what do we aspire to be? And that's where you set the bar. When Aaron says to Moses, you know the way they are, they're in a bad place. For Moshe, that doesn't work. I don't care where they are, Moshe would say. I know where they can be. That's the point of, of, of Moshe. So, these are two different models of leadership altogether. Aaron is the one who tries to move them up to a certain place, and Moshe starts with a completely opposite assumption. My point is, if the people are going to survive, Aaron's going to survive. Aaron's their representative. Aaron's their flag. Aaron represents them. In Exodus, when the people are going to survive, Aaron will survive. But in Deuteronomy, when God says to Moshe says, God wanted to destroy you, and I didn't, Moshe doesn't pray for them right away. The issue is survival. So that, of course, will be our own. And Aaron also, if you, Aaron goes down with the ship, if the people are destroyed, of course, Aaron would also be destroyed. Okay, we'll stop here. Next week we will, the last question for Pesach, so we'll, pick, we'll look at the Agada, and maybe a little bit more, and then we'll continue with the Golden Calf. Okay, stop here.